0: And the three bands were the opening act was Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Second build was Cheap Trick and we were headlining. Like that, that blows my mind. I don't think he wanted a reminder of that and people looking at him. And it was easier to make me be faulty in some way so that the girls would be kind of against me or have a negative opinion of me rather than having me there and him being reminded that he had crossed the line.
1: Hello and welcome to episode 60 of Vintage Rock Pod, the ultimate classic rock podcast that proudly claims that my music is better than yours. I'm Paul Stevenson. Thanks, as always, for hitting play. Now, on this week's show, I'm speaking with one of the core members of one of the earliest and most influential female rock bands of all time, a group that proved that women could rock just as hard as any man can. The lineup of Joan Jet. Cherie Curry, Sandy West, Lita Ford and my guest Jackie Fox of course make up the lineup of The Runaways. Now the members were all but young girls when the group formed in the mid-70s all just 15 and 16. And although the group in its truest sense were only together for a short period of time they paved the way for the bands like I don't know, the Go-Go's and the Bangles and Vixen and the Donners and many others to hit the big time. Their army of fans stretched across the globe especially in Europe in Japan, where their most famous hit, Cherry Bomb, was a number one hit. And I suppose the fact that Lita Ford and Joan Jett both went on to have hugely successful solo careers in their own right just highlights the incredible musicianship within the band. But... It was the mid-70s, and as we've heard on previous episodes of Vintage Rock Pod, with interviews I've done with people like Susie Quattro and Liara and and Ellen Foley, who remember said she was uh, manhandled out of the studio during the recording of her own solo album in the 70s because she was a woman, so what did she know? The industry back then and the time period were not great for females, and not safe for young women in particular. Now, the stories behind The Runaways are very famous. Each of the band members have told their stories at various times. The girls were exploited financially and in many other ways too. I mean, drink, drugs, many other substances were made readily available and sexual assault was involved. Remember, these girls were all just teenagers. Now, my guest, Jackie Fox, bravely came forward a few years ago to tell how the band's manager, Kim Fowley, raped her in front of others. And indeed, the subject is brought up in the interview as well. And there are many other cases and women who have accused Kim of sexual assault too, with the Runaways early bass player, Michael Steele, who later became a huge part of the Bangles' success in the 80s, says she was fired by Kim for refusing his sexual advances too. Now, I'd like to state now that if you've been a victim of sexual assault or have been affected in any way and would like support, then please reach out to one of the many and various organisations that can help you in whatever country you're in. Help is available. As for Jackie Fox then, this interview is wide-ranging and it's fascinating too, starting from her early days learning the guitar through her time in The Runaways, being in the same class as Barack Obama, yes, graduating Harvard, and to her more recent success on Jeopardy and the news of her new rock industry-themed board game. Plenty to go through. So here you go, here's my conversation with Jackie Fuchs, better known as Jackie Fox. So let, let's start at the beginning then. So obviously you joined the Runaways when you were really young. You were what, 15 or something like that. So so what was it that, that made you pick up a guitar in the first place? What, what were you listening to? What, what was it that inspired you to, to want to play the guitar or, or the bass as it turned into?
0: You know, I think we just had musical instruments around from when we were young. My parents bought an acoustic guitar when we were very young. I want to say we, it's my younger sister and I. And um, starting around age eight, maybe, maybe even earlier, I got sent to the park for lessons. Okay. And at that time, they were teaching you folk songs. I mean, old folk songs like, Hang down your head, Tom Dooley. Hang down your head and cry. I mean, there was like a song about, I think it's about a guy who's about to get hanged. There's like these horrible songs <laughs> to teach little children. Um, definitely not the kind of music I listen to because I was listening to my parents' records and my parents were listening to rock and roll and to Broadway musicals. So I grew up listening to Credence Clearwater Revival. And they also, I got to admit, really liked Tom Jones and Eaglebert Humperdinck. So I listened to that too, but it was kind of nice getting exposed to all these different musical styles. And even to be taught the folk stuff, it mm-hmm. gives you a heritage of music that you can bring into the rest of your life. And then I, on my own, decided I wanted to learn classical guitar because I had albums by Julian Breen and other classical guitarists. And I wanted to do that. I wanted to compose. So I actually, at the time I joined the Runaways, was learning jazz scales and learning how to compose classical. So I played a lot of different things. And then they said, oh, okay, you sound perfect. And I went in and did not impress. I think uh, they were playing very, very hard rock, which was the one thing I had not played. So yeah, I could play Stairway to Heaven. I could play The Needle and the Damage Done, but just screaming loud rock wasn't my thing. (laughs) So we parted ways, but I think the manager always kind of thought I would be a good addition to the band. So when they couldn't find a bass player and they needed one kind of desperately called me up and said, can you play bass? And I've said, I don't know, I've never done it, but it's the same first four strings as are on a guitar. So I can play the notes. He's like, great, come down and audition. And turns out I have a natural sense of rhythm and I was a better bass player than guitarist.
1: Did you ever harbour any resentment then towards the fact that you'd started out in guitar and you had this... You say you're a better bass player than a guitarist, but you're talking about jazz scales and classical and things like that. So you obviously had the, the ability and the technique and things like that. So was there ever any kind of resentment that you weren't the guitar player in the band?
0: No, not at all. Nah. I really enjoyed playing bass. I worked very well with Sandy, who has unfortunately passed away. But she was incredibly generous with her musical ability and her time. And we would show up early to rehearsal and just practice the rhythm parts on our songs until we really got to be in sync. And so it was really nice working with her.
1: So obviously the classic lineup of the band, it, it's Lita, it's Joan, it's Sandy, it's Cherie, it's yourself. Um Again, you were so young when you, when the band started and, and you found fame. What was the band like in the early days? What was the relationship like between you all?
0: Well, it, it, it varied. It be, and in part because we had a manager who, in trying to keep control, was very much of the divide and conquer frame of mind. So he would do things that would keep us apart okay. and kind of start little rumors. and And if there was a division... You know, he would say he was trying to make it up, but he really wasn't. And he would come to me and he would say, oh, you're the second, you know, based on fan mail, you're the second most popular person in the band after Cherie. And I'm sure he was saying the same thing to everybody else in the band who wasn't Cherie and trying to make us all jealous of each other instead of trying to make us a cohesive unit. Mm -hmm. And there were a lot of drugs around, which some of the members of the band had a, a problem with. And drugs will make anybody more paranoid, less friendly, or, you know, or friendly in an artificial way yeah. that's temporary. And I don't think we really had that voice that was there telling us how to be friends and how to get along and how to resolve disputes properly. And ultimately, that was what drove us apart. It wasn't musical mm-hmm. differences. It wasn't even a different approach to the business of the band. Really, it was drugs.
1: So was there, you you mentioned earlier that you worked well with Sandy and you formed the the rhythm section nicely there. Was there anybody within the band that that you formed a good connection with?
0: Um, Pretty much everybody except Sandy, but it (laughs) it differed. I could not be, Lita and Cherie did not get along. I mean, they've openly said this. They just did not get along. So I was able to be friends with one of them at a time. But if I was close to Cherie, Lita would not, Talk to me. And if I was close to Lita, Cherie wouldn't talk to me. So that could be very awkward. Mm-hmm. And Joan could be kind of a refuge at times, but she was more likely to be hanging out with Sandy or to be hanging out with Cherie, at which point I'd go back to being friends with Lita. It was just kind of a changing, who are you friends with this week yeah. kind of a situation. And none of it was permanent or lasting, but it all added up. And I will tell you though the only thing that I ever truly resented from the band, and I know this was something that Kim started, was them giving me shit about playing with a pick. Wow. It was kind of like real bass players don't play with a pick. They pluck with their fingers. And because I had been a guitarist, it was easier and more comfortable for me when I switched to continue playing with a pick. And I really had a complex about that. Up until like a couple of years ago. Well,
1: that's blown my mind to be honest you. I've, I've spoken to, to lots of different bass players, and, and there's a, a real wide variation in, in the way that people play, um, even thumb picks and things like that. So to, to to have that hang up and imposed on you, just it's it's baffling.
0: Yeah, especially as as a 16, 17-year-old yeah. girl. Now, what I would have liked was somebody to say, Hey, would you like another, yeah, another weapon in your arsenal of bass playing? we're going to put you together with somebody who will show you how to play with your fingers if you want to. So you can have that sound as an Mm -hmm. alternate. I probably still would have continued to play with a pick just because of how hard our sound was and what I needed to do to be heard over, uh, you know, Lita went to 11, always. (laughs) Sometimes she went to 12. So if I wanted to be heard, I ended up playing through an Ampeg guitar amp To have a punchier sound so that it wouldn't just be muddy and lost in the mix because we didn't really have a sound person we had a roadie or a manager who was doing sound and they were not necessarily the best at it especially because we were playing at too loud a stage volume so it would have been nice to have had a way to vary it up but instead i was just trying to be like this punching sound that you Mm -hmm. could hear over the mud so, yeah, a pick was much better for that.
1: Uh, I mean, you talk about stage sound there and things like that. I mean, you guys, you toured with some incredible acts, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers and, and Van Halen and Cheap Trick and things like that. Is there any shows or concerts that stand out to you from your time with these guys?
0: Well, actually, we never played with Van Halen. Okay. They came to our rehearsals and we went and saw their rehearsals ah. and their shows, so they were friends. And something that people get wrong is that Cheap Trick opened for us At a couple of venues, and they were the nicest guys. I loved hanging out with them. They were just, they were generous. They were funny. Um, And I do have a great memory. We did a show in, um, in Michigan. It was actually two shows per night with three bands. And the three bands were the opening act was Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, second build was Cheap Trick, and we were headlining, which is right there. Like that, that blows my mind. And uh, so, during the first show, Cheap Trick was playing. I forget how exactly how this was set up, but there were these monitors that we heard ourselves through. were up kind of high. It was like an orchestra pit, and there were some audience people in it. And then the regular seats started, and somebody in the front of the regular seats was heckling Rick Nielsen of Cheap Trick. So Rick jumped up onto one of the amplifiers and started spitting good and plenties at the guy who was heckling him. During the song, never missed a note.
1: For us here in the UK, what's a good and plenty? Is that a little sweet or nut or or something?
0: Uh, It's a long, narrow, like a cylindrical, rounded edge, like a pill-shaped.
1: Like a tic-tac sort of thing? Like a small...
0: Yeah, but but, but capsule-shaped.
1: Okay, right, yeah.
0: So he was had these in his mouth and he would just kind of go like da 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 and and spitting at this guy with dead on accuracy, where he was just hitting him every time.
1: Can I ask you about the first album if you don't mind? Um Yeah,
0: yeah to this the extent I remember the first album.
1: <laughs> um Obviously, you joined the band, you were playing bass, but you didn't actually play bass on the recording for that. What was the reason behind that?
0: Well, okay, let's, let's get real here. This has not been discussed, but I, I think it's pretty obvious that the reason was that our manager had raped me on New Year's Eve, and I don't think he... You know, this album was recorded shortly after that. I don't think he wanted a reminder of that and people looking at him and it was easier to make me be faulty in some way so that the girls would be kind of against me or have a negative opinion of me rather than having me there and him being reminded that he had crossed the line you know i never got to talk to him at the end i did try to kind of say okay what happened that night was i always the target did you have another plan that went wrong was this a sudden thing I, so I will never know, mm-hmm. but I think he definitely knew we had done something wrong and that he had transgressed a boundary he shouldn't have. And I had power over him, unfortunately, that I never recognized, but he knew it was there. And I don't think he wanted to face me any more than he had to. Okay. So I think that is the real reason because he can say, oh, I wasn't good enough at the time because I was still new. Well, then why'd you bring me in the studio to teach Nigel Harrison, my base parts? doesn't that up a- everything smelled like a, an excuse absolutely
1: and just mentioning what, what you said there about the, the rape um how did you feel a few years ago when you, you finally got the courage to 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 tell your story it's a difficult thing to to do um and then your bandmates reacted the way they did i mean how how did that feel for you
0: um you know it's hard to go back to the place where i, I was when i first came forward because i felt sort of Free in a way because they no longer had that hanging over my head. With we're going to out you, and believe me, there are a couple of them that did use that as a threat to try to get me to do things that they wanted me to do, um, which is a horrible feeling because people, he really, I'm going to say, if you know somebody who's been sexually assaulted, unless the person who did it is a continuing danger and you saying what happened is going to stop this continuing danger, you don't ever out somebody who has been the victim of sexual assault. It's just, that is a horrible, horrible feeling. Um, And it can make people, it it made me retreat further into my shell. It's like, I'm not going, because the way you are telling this is amplified to serve your ends. And that does not feel good. Once I talked about it, I didn't feel particularly good about having talked about it. I felt like I had done something very good for other women. I mean, I'm still stunned when I think about how many messages I got on social media from people saying the same thing happened to me. I've never told anyone. Thank you for being a voice for us. Thank you for talking about it. You have to remember, this is a few years before Me Too became a household phrase. So I just think that because I did it, because there were witnesses who backed me up, and just because of it was the right moment for it, that story ended up going viral, which was very weird to me. And I think it made it easier for other women to come forward. And my small way, I contributed to allowing the Me Too movement to happen. So that part feels really good. As for being in a position of talking about it, I'd prefer not to. I'm still like to focus on the more positive side of life. There's enough, especially the last couple of years, there's enough doom and gloom to go around. So I've just been trying to find my joy, which sounds really cliche, but it's very true and to create some joy.
1: Absolutely. And that's what you are doing at the moment with your board games. And um, we'll get onto that shortly as well. Um, And can I ask you a couple of other things, if you don't mind? Um, Just about your time in Japan, it was your Beatlemania kind of uh, sensation, wasn't it, when you were over there with the the girls?
0: Oh, yeah. That was the one time that I really got to experience what it feels like to be a rock star, because we were followed everywhere. And in fact, we, we were supposed to be doing a record store appearance, and they had us in uh, this big car. They didn't really have limos there. Mm-hmm. They just had big American cars. So we're in this big American car pulling into the alley behind a record store. And the alley is completely filled with fans to where we can only inch forward a little bit at a time. And most of the time are stuck because you don't want to run one of these fans over. And it got very stuffy, it got very stuffy in the car. Somebody cracked the window and an envelope flew mm-hmm. in. And, and it hit one of the girls in the face and, and she picked it up and looked at it. And it was addressed to me. I think it was Cherie that it hit. I might, might be wrong about this, but whoever it hit opened it first and decided to start reading. And it was this guy who wrote a number of very romantic, but sweet letters to me that went on for like eight pages, <laughs> So it was a whole drama and they just passed it back and forth, reading this out loud as we tried to inch our way through the alley with fans plastered on the windows and on the top of the car, you know, moving along with us. And finally, they just went, we cannot get you in there safely. And we kept inching forward and finally got out of the alley, turned a corner. They hustled us out of the car into a building. It was like the basement of a building. (laughs) We're, we walked through, because all the buildings were connected. Okay. So we're down in a basement that we've crawled down into. It's, con- it's connected through, you know, underneath the building there are these warrens. We go through them. We come up. We're in a kitchen. I don't know why we were in a kitchen, but we're in the middle of a kitchen, like for some restaurant. It sounds
1: like a movie chase.
0: <laughs> we go, mar- Yeah, it felt like it. We can go marching through there, and finally, we emerge up into a giant department store. And we were able to walk out the front, hail a taxi, and get back to the hotel, where there were yet more fans waiting.
1: My
0: word. It, it was crazy.
1: I was going to say, that sounds scary as well, as much as anything.
0: It was scary, but it was more... At the time when they get you out of the car, and you're not at... you know Don't think you're at risk of suffocating anymore. And now you're running through, and yeah, it's like a spy movie. And you're just too stupefied <laughs> by everything that's going on. And you know, like we're in a kitchen. <laughs> But <laughs> oh, now we're in a department store and you're just getting you don't have time to think about it because you're getting hustled through and it's kind of becomes fun
1: another thing a good friend of yours sadly no longer with us Randy Rhodes you were such good friends with him and the story goes that you had a hand in in him joining up with Ozzy Osbourne didn't you
0: I did Dana Strom who later on joined the band Slaughter as their bass player was working with Ozzy for some reason and he called me up and said, Ozzy's looking for a guitarist. Do you know anyone who might be good? And I knew from from our conversations that Randy had just about had it with Quiet Riot. He and Kevin Dubrow had been fighting a lot, and he felt like the band wasn't going anywhere. So I knew he was kind of susceptible. I gave Dana Randy's number, and next thing I know, Randy is playing with Ozzy, which is just... was kind of crazy. And at that point, I sort of lost touch with Randy, which is unfortunate. And then the next thing I knew, um, I'm driving along in a little place called Sherman Oaks, California, listening to classic rock on the radio when they broke in to announce that some members of Ozzy's band and entourage had died and they named Randy. And I pulled into a drugstore parking lot and just started sobbing. That was one of the worst moments of my life.
1: I can imagine. And then um, he was someone that you kind of confided in as well, didn't you? You, you, you fell oh, back yeah. on Oh yeah, I think
0: we, we were that for each other. So we'd have a lot of phone conversations about, initially about me being unhappy in the runaways and then about him being unhappy in Quiet Riot. And so we had this thing to relate to and we had dated each other. So there was a comfort level there. I think we both realized early on that the love of Randy's life was really Jody, who had been dating Kevin. And it was just like, there was this light bulb moment for them. And I think that I recognized that too and went, oh yeah, you guys should be together. And then Randy and I just became friends. And it was and that was always very comfortable because I was friends with Jody as well.
1: You've had a fascinating life, other than the runaways, which which people talk about all the time with you. But you were at one of the most intellectual rock stars I think I've ever spoken to. I mean, you you're at law school, you you you're in the same class with Barack Obama at Harvard, you've appeared on multiple quiz shows and, and won thousands of pounds on things like Jeopardy. I mean it's incredible what you've achieved and what, what you've done. It, it's fascinating to speak to you. So let's break some of these down. I mean, let's begin with law school. I mean, that was after the band. I mean, why why did you go in that direction?
0: Okay, so when I left the band, I took jobs in the music industry. Initially, I ended up doing record promotion, which was trying to get other people's records played on the radio. And then I did music publishing, which was trying to get artists to cover other artists' songs. For songwriter songs, I should say. And I realized that I wanted to go into management and to manage bands, but it was very hard to get taken seriously as a woman at all, and especially as a very young woman, which I still was. And I thought that having a college degree would help. So after kind of banging my head on the wall, just working for managers and not being taken seriously enough, I decided I would go back to college. I went and got a degree in linguistics and Italian with a specialization in computing from UCLA. (laughs) And I was already, I had my fellowship stacked up to go get a PhD in linguistics. And I noticed that all my friends who were linguists or who were students in linguistics were having very hard times finding jobs. It's like, oh, look, there's an opening in Boulder, Colorado, and there's one in (laughs) Ann Arbor, Michigan. And that's it right now. And neither of these is tenure track. It's like, oh, I don't think I want to be moving every couple of years. You know what? Maybe I'll just apply to law school because I've got a law degree. I don't have to practice law. I can go be a manager and I'll have this degree from a top university that says I'm smart. So I went and got my law degree from Harvard and uh, you leave law school and your student loan debt is so high and this was in the era of double digit interest rates Wow! so i had like 12 percent interest on my student loans and it, was, it took a while to pay that down and to do that you really have to be a lawyer i mean mm-hmm. you don't have to there's a very big manager in the rock music business um, a guy named jeff quantinance who was a classmate of mine at harvard although i didn't know him at harvard He became one of the biggest managers in the business. He never even showed up at class in law school. He had friends kind of telling him, here's here's how you take an exam and how you do well. And I didn't have those friends because, of course, they were guys. They were men who were working in the industry. So he had it figured out and did that. Um, I didn't. So I practiced law for quite some time. The problem is that law degrees don't protect you from the same kind of harassment That I had faced as a musician and uh, I decided that I wasn't going to take that. And I raised the issue a couple of places where I worked and that just gets you pretty much blacklisted from the industry. And um, so I had to sit back for a while and say, okay, what is it that makes me happy? What do I like to do? I kind of like, I like making deals. I like that side of it. I don't like the people though, that I'm making deals with. They are dog-eat-dog people. Mm-hmm. And is this who I want to spend my day around? And I decided I didn't. I ended up retiring. And I started being kind of the teenager I'd never gotten to be. Yeah. And that was this nerdy, game-playing, book-reading person. And I started doing that. And I suddenly found I didn't have very much money. But I was happy for the first time in my life, you know? And it was like, we may have something to this. And I started playing board games kind of on a, through a series of accidents, discovered that I really, really liked them. And one day looked up and I was not satisfied by something that I think because there's the dreaded five player count. Most games are designed to be played between two and four players. But when you get five, it's just terrible and there aren't a lot of games. So I went, I'm going to design a game, the game that I want on my shelf that isn't there. And it's one that plays very quickly, even when there are five people. So people aren't pulling out their phones and checking their emails. And it's it's a European style strategy game, which is what my group likes and what I like. But it's going to feel like a so-called Ameritrash kind of game, which is heavy on theme and there's some, Oh, what's going to happen. And just has a, a fun factor. And I thought, well, how can I do this? And I said, I know I was in a band. People are always asking me what that was like here. I'm going to give you the experience. So I created a game, which currently is called rock hard 1977, whether that will keep that name. I don't know. And, uh, it's about what it's like to be a band in a band back in the day, where you start out, you're looking your regular job, trying to save enough money for rehearsal space, get better at what you do, build up a reputation, write some original songs, start playing larger and larger venues, get a manager, a record deal, make the big time, and have some fun while you're at it. Because if you're not having fun, this is this is my great take on everything. If you're not having fun,
1: <laughs> what's, what's the
0: point? The point? Absolutely. You know. So, what
1: stage are we at with this? Are we are we near consumer stage, or is it still having development? No,
0: it is. Um, the consumer stage ends up taking a while to get to. The game is with a publisher who is deciding whether they want to commit to production, and I should hear back in the next week. Wow! And then, if they decide to move forward, it's probably going to be two years before you're able to run out and buy it. Wow. It takes a long time to get a board game to, to where you can purchase it and play it. It's longer than it takes to make a movie.
1: So what's the best way to keep in touch with you then on social media and things like that to, to see what's happening, especially with, with the board game in mind?
0: So the board game it is at rockhard1977, just spelled like one word, and that is on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram and then you can follow me, either Foxy Kumir, which is just uh, F-O-X-Y-C-M-E-R-E. That's Instagram. And everywhere else, I am Jackie Fox 1976 just to be a little confusing there. And uh, people can keep up with me that way. And I post fairly regularly with different content on all three.
1: Well, Jackie, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you and uh, I look forward to, to playing the game.
0: Well, I look forward to you playing it and seeing what you think. And in the meantime, I will just leave you with the... Hey, Foxy! Come here! <laughs>
1: jackie fox there please check her out on all the social media platforms she mentioned and fingers crossed in the next couple of years we get to buy her board game too now it's the time of the show for my top five and this week of course it's the top five runaways songs as always this is my personal choice highly subjective i don't expect you to agree in fact i'd love to hear how you disagree so please reach out with your own top five lists so here you go my top five favorite songs from the runaways according to vintage rock at 5 is the closing track on their debut album, and it stood out in many ways, notably in its length, seven minutes long in a mini rock opera style, and the dual lead vocals between Joan and Cherie. Lita's solo is a cracker on this too. At 5 is Dead End Justice. Dead End. At four is the title track from their second album. It's a harder guitar sound on this track with a deeper riff complemented by the catchy chorus hook sung by Joan. At number four is Queens of Noise. Oh yeah is a track found on the band's Live in Japan album. It has a fierce, sleazy guitar sound with strong punk sensibilities and the now iconic I'm the bitch with the hot guitar line spat with venom. At three is I Wanna Be With The Boys Are. I am the bitch with the hot guitar. At Two is another track from their debut album, probably their most famous song in fact. It was quickly written for Cherie to audition with with the band. Even today it appears in Hollywood movies and high-profile TV shows, and you can see why. At Two is Cherry Bomb And at number one for me is another from the second album, Queens of Noise. It's a Joan Jett composition and lead vocal. It's a lot of fun and again is a rocker. The big thing for me is the chorus. It's one of those that you hear and leaves you singing it all day. My favourite song from The Runaways and number one on my list is I Love Playing with Fire. So there you go, my top five songs from The Runaways. As I said, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this list. Where do you agree or disagree, let me know by emailing vintagerockpod at gmail.com or you can catch me on any of the social media platforms. Now, I do hope you enjoyed today's episode and the interview with Jackie Fox. If you did, please hit subscribe on whatever podcast platform you're listening to this on so you don't miss any more future episodes with big-name guests. Please do check out the back catalogue of interviews too. This episode is number 60, So there are 59 other full-length interviews with rock stars who are big in the 60s, 70s and 80s, including 14 Rock and Roll Hall of Famers, Grammy Award winners and multi-platinum selling artists too. And check out the Vintage Rock Pod, social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and YouTube. Just search for Vintage Rock Pod. Give us a like, follow or subscribe. It would be most appreciated. That's it for me then. Until episode 61, remember, if you come across anyone who isn't a fan of classic, Rock, just tell them my music is better than yours. Take care.
2: It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football.